You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Grace Community Church. Is this your first time, sir? Uh, Chad's been out of town for a while, so good that he's back in town. I have been meeting some of you for the first time, probably it's the third time that I've met you for the first time, but that's kind of the way it is at my age, I suppose. But we're very glad that you're here. If you're here for the first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. But regardless of how many times you've been here, I'm so glad that you're here. One of the ministries that we have at Grace Community Church that a lot of people are either not aware of or do not avail themselves of this ministry is Grace Matters, led by one of our elders, Neil Manning. Uh, on Wednesday night, when it's the fifth Wednesday of the month, uh, which happens about four times a year, uh, we tackle, well, we don't tackle, we just kind of enjoy soft, little, easy topics like women in leadership, ministry leadership, and race relations in the church and stuff like that. We really deal with some pretty uh, interesting stuff, baptism, lots of things that we, we talk about on, on those Wednesday nights. This past time was a very special time. Talked about 25 years of ministry at Grace. This church was begun in the fall of 1994, 25 years ago. Ricky Mill, who has a counseling ministry, one of the missionaries that we support in Raleigh, had a big part in those early years. He was not one of the founding members, but very soon after the church began, they, the guys who started the church, men and women who started the church, called Ricky to come and serve as a part-time pastor. If you've read our constitution, you will know, you'll, you'll suspect, even if you didn't know this, that it was written by lawyers. It's very thorough and very good, very good. But Ricky had a great deal of influence on the shaping of that uh, particular document. And when he, we had this Grace Matters a couple of months ago, Ricky was here. We had a panel of the people who were involved in the early days of the church. It is very encouraging. I would uh, invite you to go to the podcast, uh, to the website, find the sermons, and on the sermons you'll, you'll find uh, that grace matters, that last grace matters. And I think it's just titled 25 Years of Grace. Ricky Mill, who was here with us that night, and just such a godly man who, who is a beautiful counselor uh, of men and women in Raleigh, will be here next Sunday morning. And it would be, he'll be preaching. Alice and I are visiting kids, kids up north. And so uh, we would, I would encourage you to go to that uh, podcast and hear Ricky before you come next week. Uh, it's our delight to still be connected with him and just to tell him how much we appreciate the role he had in this place being formed. Uh, in his classic book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by a gentleman who is a Mormon, you don't sense that in any way as you read the book book that's been around for a long time, and I imagine several of you have read, really an outstanding book based primarily on biblical principles. 
doesn't say this is a scriptural book, but there are a lot of biblical principles. And Stephen Covey, who wrote this book, in introducing the habit of begin with the end in mind, asked this question. If you came to a funeral and you walked up and there's an open casket and you looked in and it's you that's in that casket and four people are going to speak at the funeral, a friend, a family member, a work associate, and a church member, and they're going to tell the truth, what do you want them to say about you? <clears throat> what is it that you hope to hear? They're going to tell the truth now. So what is it that you hope to hear? That is a really good question. That's a, a biblical principle. What do you want Jesus to say when you stand before him at the end of your life? I won't suggest answers because you've already thought about what you would want. I won't give a long list. You've already thought about what you would like people to say about you. Maybe you've not thought about this one. But would you like for others to say, above all, he or she pointed others to Jesus. Wouldn't that be great if that's what people said about us? Wouldn't that be the most significant thing that we could do would be to point other people to Jesus? Did anyone ever do a better job of that than John the Baptist? You may think that John the Baptist was made famous by his association with Jesus. Oh yeah, he's the one that came before. But in the early days, it was the other way around. John was the one who had a lot of crowds following him. When Jesus came and was baptized, John said, he's the one I've been talking about. He's the one. Go to him. People would say, oh, John, what you got going? He's, no, no, look, I'm telling you, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John, as a successful evangelist, sent many of his own disciples over to Jesus. Being as intimately acquainted with human nature as I am, I have to assume this could not have been easy for John. Big crowds, shrinking crowds. Where did they go? Home? No, they went to Jesus. His crowds were growing. I, I, I think it's safe to say, while this is not easy, it certainly was not natural. John 3, through 24 sets the scene. So with these verses on the screen, I want to make a couple of observations. First, Jesus and his disciples began baptizing in a place that was close to where Jesus was baptizing. A place where there was much water. That seems to point to immersion, doesn't it? I mean, that'd be a lot of heads to sprinkle if it's just, there's a lot of water and they're sprinkling. So probably it was immersion, but you should know that this baptism was not believer's baptism. This baptism was a baptism of repentance that John practiced in anticipation of the Messiah. John was under the law. And he thought a Messiah was coming, but he thought a Messiah, he knew a Messiah was coming, but he thought the Messiah would just say, all right, everybody's going to live according to the law. Now straighten up. Israel is king of the world. That's what he anticipated the Messiah would do. John 4, by the way, is going to tell us that Jesus oversaw his disciples while they baptized. He didn't do baptize. He wasn't doing, performing the baptisms, but his disciples were. 
So second observation, in the same way that John structured the first half of John 3, he's going to do the same in this next stage. Early on, he sets the stage. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. John uh, found himself baptizing very near to where Jesus was baptizing, and, and the crowd started going over. Then John uh, records a conversation at first between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, later in John 3, it's between John and his disciples, John the Baptist and his disciples. Let me just say this. I'm going to say John the Baptist a lot more than I want to today. It's only to distinguish between John the Apostle who wrote this gospel and John the Baptist. Now, John the Apostle never uses his own name in the gospel. So every time you see the word John or the name John, he's referring to John the Baptist. He, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. Uh, so <clears throat> he's talking about John the Baptist. But I'll, I'll say it a lot just to, because I'll use John the Apostle's name as much as I do John the Baptist almost. So after... We have this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now we got a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. Then John the Apostle gives his reflections. Here's what they were saying. Here's what you need to know. This is important to understand. This is the plan of God that unfolded before our eyes. And I get to recount to you what was said and what it means. After John... The apostle has shared with us the words of John the Baptist, recalling some of the best words ever uttered by a human being, by a, a follower of Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. After these words, the apostle John begins to once again differentiate between Jesus and every human being who has ever lived. Be they great like Moses or John the Baptist, or be they very common like some of the people that Jesus healed. Poor people, common people. <clears throat> Jesus stands above all human beings. In the remaining verses of the chapter, the Apostle John reminds us that anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who understands that Jesus has come, to die for our sins because we could never be good enough to be saved. Anyone who believes that Jesus has done that, he's repented of his sins and put his faith in Jesus, has stated that God is true. Not only Jesus is true, not only, yeah, we believe him, but he sets his seal in this way. He affirms that God the Father, Yahweh, is true in sending Jesus. And the Father gives the Spirit or gave the Spirit without measure to Jesus Christ. We who believe are given spiritual gifts, but there are limitations that come with the Holy Spirit's gifts to us. Jesus had no limitations whatsoever because the Spirit was given to him without interruption, without measure, continuously. Finally, Verse 36 repeats the truth already given in John 3.18. With Jesus, eternal life. Without Jesus, God's wrath and condemnation. Now, if this is your first time here, what, we've, what I've already shared this morning may feel a bit overwhelming. There's a passage that's kind of like this. We looked at the first part 
that, that sets up this middle part, and then we skipped the middle part and looked at the last, see what it all means. If you've been here and you've been following this series on John, hopefully the, the pieces are beginning to fall into place. If you're interested, interested, you could go to the podcast and follow this series on John. You can go to the sermon section on the website, and you'll also find the manuscript there. Um, you won't find it word for word in the, in, in the sermon, but uh, as the sermon was preached, but you'll see what I'm seeing right now, most of which is okay, but some of which I say, hmm, better not say that. No, not really. Um, you might want to go to the second message, especially in this series, that's uh, on John 1, 6 to 13, where there's a chart that shows the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. We'll talk a little bit later about why that's a big deal. The focus for the rest of our time this morning is uh, John 3, 25 to 30. It's our custom to stand as the scriptures read, so if you would please stand out of respect for God's word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. That's questions about the law. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, <clears throat> the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, most of us spend a whole lot of time thinking about how we are going to increase in the eyes of others, in our own self-esteem, our own view of ourselves. May we take this important word from the messenger who pointed others to Jesus, John the Baptist. And may it be our heart's desire that Jesus increase even as we decrease. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, I'm not crazy about how-to sermons. Occasionally, I'll say, here's seven ways to how to do this. Got one on fear that I talk about sometimes, how to overcome fear. Uh, I'm not really crazy about those kinds of sermons, although the three characteristics, the three points I'm going to make about the characteristics that we find in John the Baptist's life that led him to say, he must increase, but I must decrease, are structured as a challenge for us to strive for the humility that John had. That's an interesting, I just kept thinking about that phrase, strive for humility. They don't usually go together. The first challenge is this, rest in who 
God has made you to be. To rest sounds passive, and, and there's a sense in which it is. But it describes a conscious decision to be content with who God has made you to be. That sounds really almost un-American if you think about it and you follow it out. And indeed, the gospel of Jesus is antithetical to the American value of you can be anybody you want to be, whoever you want to be, as long as you work hard enough. Although the current version of the American dream is more Disney-esque. Look inside yourself and be the beautiful person that God has called you or he has, that is inside of you that is waiting to show the world who you are. Just believe that you are good enough. When John's disciples tried to provoke him to being upset about the thinning crowds, even as Jesus' crowds were growing, I'm sure that Satan whispered in his ear, you know, John, I want, you can draw a crowd. I'll give you that. And you had a big bunch of people following you. But you just can't keep a crowd. What's wrong with you? You appear to be successful now. Oh, I guess you're just a failure. <laughs> but John recognized what we read earlier in this chapter. When Jesus told Nicodemus, if a person is not born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter the kingdom of God. John the Baptist said it a little differently. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So what has been given to you from heaven? What do you have that is a gift from heaven? Now, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been given. It indicates that you have been given the greatest gift that anyone can ever receive. But what about your personality? How you, are you happy with that? Your body structure, your body type, your financial status, your circumstances. Now, you may think I'm about to go all Disney movie on you and tell you that Scripture promises that we can overcome. But I'm not. Why is it that we despise the gifts, the good gifts, the many good gifts that God has given us and mourn the things that we do not have. Will we never be content? Up until about 200 years ago, ambition was considered a negative trait. It was a personality flaw. In recent translations, of the Bible, when you see ambition listed as a character flaw, the English word selfish has been supplied to distinguish between selfish ambition and noble ambition. It's just recently that noble ambition was considered a thing. It was an oxymoron in the past. You can't be noble and be an ambitious person. I think you can understand why that is because... A person who is ambitious will oftentimes just run over everybody else, cut corners, be unethical. Not always, but a lot of times that is the case. What implications 
does this knowledge that ambition has only recently been considered a noble thing. What implications does it have for our walk with the Lord? I don't know. But it's worth throwing into the mix. Should we develop spiritual gifts that God has given us? Absolutely we should. But remember, we must remember, as Paul said, in conjunction with the spiritual gifts in Romans 12, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. I'm just looking around this group. I, there's nobody here with that problem, so let's just move. Look, that's a relief when you receive it as God intended. Rest in the one who God has made you to be. Second, trust God to do the work he has designed for you to do in the kingdom. John the Baptist's disciples were upset and they wanted to, John to be just as upset as he was. John wasn't though. He wasn't scared to lose the crowds because he recognized the crowds were never his to begin with. We can be so creative with our possessiveness, can't we? Well, this is the work that the Lord has called me to do, but so-and-so now apparently does it better than I do. At least that's what everybody else thinks. What if John the Baptist had felt that way? His response was classic. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I'm pointing to him. When I speak of ministry, I am not referring exclusively to those who are in full-time Christian service. If you are a believer, then God has given you a job to do. It's one of the things that we um, talk about in the Grace Connection class. It was so awesome to see so many of these teenagers join the church this morning. We're hopefully they're going to start giving in big numbers now. Half their earnings that they they, they make, you know, stuff like that. But here's, we think about this. We talked about this on the night we gave testimony. They gave testimonies to the elders. 15 years old, you're allowed to become a member of grace. And we hold it off to 15. Because there's something about that age where you're beginning to be responsible in ways that you never have. So we, we are treating these guys like adults. We expect them to use good judgment. They have the right to weigh in on what the church is going to do. They can say, yes, I agree with the elders. No, I don't agree. I've prayed about this, and I either agree or I don't agree. That's a big <clears throat> responsibility. Every one of you guys has a spiritual gift that we need in this church. Every one of every one of you has a spiritual gift, and we need your gift for the body of Christ to function as it should. And if you're sitting on the sidelines not serving, then the body is kind of like this. We're just walking like this, barely standing upright. God has designed us to be whole. And every single person has a place of responsibility. If you're a believer, God has given you a job to do. Some of you would die would rather die before contemplating coming up here and giving a sermon or even just leading the prayer time. You just hate that kind of public speaking. If I were told that it's my responsibility to be in the kitchen cleaning up to the very end after every activity that we have at Grace, 
I would need a couple of days of prayer and fasting in order to do this. I'm telling you, to get my heart ready to do this. I am so grateful that we have people that do that. And they are excited about doing it, feeling that it's their ministry. That's the way all of us ought to be about the ministry that God has given us. And of course, there are times where you do it just to be consistent and be faithful. You're not really feeling it. But it's important that it be done. But when you're serving in the places that God has called you, there's just something beautiful about it. We've all been given a gift that is significant in the kingdom. And we're called to believe Jesus when he says, if anyone gives a cup of water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, he will not lose his reward. What Jesus was saying was, Whatever you do is just as important as what anyone else does in the kingdom. How many people do you know who once served the Lord faithfully, but then they took offense at something that someone said or did, and they just walked away from the church? Do not judge in your heart because it could happen to you far more easily than you ever imagined. That's why it's good to remember the work that you do for the Lord is truly meant to be for the Lord. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we should never express appreciation or encourage, some, encourage someone who is serving the Lord faithfully. Uh, my goodness, read Philippians 2 where Paul bragged on Timothy and Epaphroditus. He was profuse, uh, profusely praising these guys. Then determine whether we should encourage others or not. We sometimes don't want to brag on people because they might get the big head. I don't know what that's all about. It's not. We're told never to seek praise for ourselves, but absolutely to encourage others and build them up. It's tragic when someone walks away because she was taken for granted by the body. It's terrible for the body to just not notice what someone is doing. It is equally tragic when someone walks away because he is offended that everyone in the church takes him for granted. If we would follow John the Baptist's example in our last point, it would help us considerably. Rejoice in Jesus as you worship him. And John just says so beautifully how much he appreciates. John the Baptist loving, worshiping Jesus. Did you know or notice how many of the songs that we sang this morning were focused on worshiping Jesus? Those songs were chosen, by the way, by David the non-denominationalist. John the Baptist, David the... Well, when John's disciples came to him, upset that their numbers were dwindling, even as Jesus' numbers were growing, Perhaps they were concerned about the number of likes that John's ministry was no longer getting on Instagram, ancient Palestine version. 
John didn't check social media. You know why he didn't, in addition to the fact that it didn't exist? I'm sure there were ways, you know, had their own kinds of ways. He didn't check so social media to see how valuable his life was and how important he was in the eyes of the public because it wasn't the most important thing in his life. John the Baptist had a reference point. He was centered on Jesus and he considered it a great privilege to point others to the Messiah. Look at how he describes the joy of his own role. And this is after things were not looking nearly as good for him as they had been. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, maybe the best man he's talking about, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, Right when you think I ought to be upset, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Are you sad sometimes because of the way the name of the Lord is defamed in our land? And you just think we need to be giving glory to Jesus Christ. Are you also sad sometimes that you are not the one that God is using to bring glory to the Lord? Maybe you were at one time, but now you're sort of pushed to the side and somebody else is the one who, it's not about him, he's giving glory, right? But John was not confused about his role. He didn't expect to be the focus of everyone's attention at the wedding. That belonged to the bridegroom. Now I mentioned not long ago I think. That ancient weddings were far different than ours today. Jewish weddings in particular. The bridegroom was the big deal. Not the bride. I'm quite happy for the attention to be on the bride these days. And in fact having officiated dozens of weddings in my years. I have never seen a bride that just wasn't beautiful. Saw one recently Rachel. And, you know, what was in my senior years, I, I get emotional when the bride's walking down as much because of the look on the bridegroom's face, on the groom's face as, as, as what's on the bride. Austin, who's married to Rachel, you may have met him on the side of the road if you were speeding. He's a highway patrolman. <laughs> but <clears throat> I can tell you, he didn't look like a highway patrolman when Rachel was walking. He's like, uh, you know. Like a dying calf in a hailstorm. You know, that's the way bridegrooms look often. When the, when the bride is coming to them, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of rapture that John had. He said, oh, you're trying to make this about me. I, I'm so happy for Jesus. John wanted none of the glory. He delighted in pointing others to Christ. Even so, I think about this. His disciples wanted John, not Jesus. John reminded them, didn't I tell you? Did you not hear me? I am not the Christ. 
He is. My son, Michael Talley, who has significantly contributed to this uh, message today. He did two sermons on John the Baptist last year. I've contributed to his next week in, in uh, Boone. He's going to be preaching there. So we've been sharing. I've stolen the mess out of his, some of his stuff. Michael uh, told about a seminary professor he had heard about who would have his students come to the front of the room on the first day of class and they would say, I am not the Christ. That's pretty cool. I mean, these are guys who were going to be in the limelight. I remember the first time David had these lights turned up on me. I, you know, it's like, ah, oh, uh. You just get used to it after a while. But, but people who are in ministry are often looked to as being really super saints or something like that. And they're absolutely not. And you need to remember it's not about you. But I'm not talking up only about ministers. I'm talking about all of us who have any opportunity to serve the Lord at all. It's a good thing for us to publicly state occasionally maybe. I am not the Christ. My mother taught Sunday school class in Fuquay and... This morning, Allison, in the early service, Allison was here. She rarely goes home, but we're going to be, like I told you, heading north this week, and it's a full week for both of us. So she went home to, to get some things done after the first service. But I, I started to say half the people that we used to meet, and then I thought, well, no, just about half the people she meets in Fuquay talk about how they were in my mom's Sunday school class. I can't tell you how many people in Fuquay Arena know Jesus because of my mom's ministry, or the Lord using my mom in that way, my mother. And one of the things that she used to do, was so great, was give time in her Sunday school class for people to say one after the other, not just going around the circle, but just one over here, one over there, would say, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. My good friend, Jim Bunker, some of you know Jim and Marlene Bunker. Jim went to be with the Lord in this last year. I think on the day that he said that was the moment that he confessed Jesus for the first time. He was given opportunity. I do that occasionally. You don't do it as much now because of our numbers. We might be able to do it in, in, in one of the services. Just to give people this opportunity to say publicly, I confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior. She's getting that from Romans 10. Where if we say that out loud, if we mean it and believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Christ, we are saved. Maybe it's the kind of thing we ought to say for those of us who believe, I am not the Christ. One of the reasons... The Apostle John spent so much time focusing on John the Baptist's frequent assertions that he was not the Christ. Is that a cult surrounding John the Baptist had sprung up in Jerusalem and even around the Roman Empire. All around, Jewish leaders were saying, you know, John the Baptist, he was a great guy. Now, if you recall, they didn't think he was a great guy when he was on the scene early on. They mocked him. They didn't like him at all. But John was preaching a repentance under the law. 
Jesus was preaching a brand new way of salvation, essentially saying, I am God. If you believe in me, you will live. If you don't, you will spend eternity being judged for your sins. And we're all under judgment. Unless you believe in me, you will remain under judgment. So it was to the Jewish leaders benefit to point to John the Baptist and say he was the man it's a lot easier to talk to somebody uh, talk good about somebody after they're dead apparently than it is to their face we're all guilty of that right we begin to think oh well yeah there was look he's this way but there were so many good things but they used it for their advantage to get people to keep from believing in Jesus and so John the apostle who's writing earliest mid uh, 1st century and latest late 1st century wants to make this really clear that John himself recognized I am not the Christ. Not long after John the Baptist insightful and humble words in John 3 he was arrested because he told King Herod That he had entered into an unlawful marriage. John's gospel doesn't talk about that. Because his primary reason for pointing to John the Baptist. Is to show that John the Baptist was not the Christ. But the other gospels tell us about John's arrest. So get the picture. After John the Baptist had said all these great things about Jesus, he was thrown into prison. And while he sat in a cell, instead of coming to rescue him, Jesus moved to Galilee. And now the word gets back to John. He's just up there healing people and feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and fish. And all that time, John had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, fully expecting him to usher in the kingdom in which Jesus would set all things right. And now, Jesus had seemingly abandoned John. You may know the story from Matthew 11. John just could not wrap his head Around the circumstances. It seemed so different. From what he had thought would be. And the messengers come from John. And they ask Jesus. Are you the one? John wants to know. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And Jesus said. Go back and tell John. Everything you've seen. And you know what he did. We talked about this already. In this series of John. He pointed them back to Isaiah. Saying. Don't. You remember Isaiah prophesied all these things? I'm doing them. The the blind see, the, the lame walk, the gospel is preached to the poor. Go back and tell that to John. And, and, and tell John, by the way, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You would be surprised how often I have heard people say, especially in the last few years, I've never questioned the Lord before. But these days, I find myself wondering, what is he doing? If that's you, you're in good company. Just just consider yourself in the cell 
John the Baptist. Tim Keller goes so far as to say that doubt can be very helpful for believers. He says this, quote, Faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless either against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Close quote. Maybe that's you today. Maybe, like John the Baptist, after all your sacrificial service, doing your best to point others to Jesus, you're left wondering, what, what, what's it all for? How does this make sense? And you suspect that the Lord is disappointed with you in the same way he was disappointed with John the Baptist, right? Well, let me answer that question by asking you a question about basketball. And I want all of you who have an opinion to answer this. But answer it on my signal, on three. Don't shout out the answer when I ask the question. For you basketball fans, who is the GOAT? One, two, three. Michael Jordan. Correct answer. Yes. Good answer. Some of you say LeBron. Maybe some would even go so far as to say Magic or Larry Bird. And some of you are saying, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. You know what the GOAT stands for? The ones, the ones of you who answered no, what's it stand for? Landon. What's the GOAT stand for? Greatest of all time. You know what all four of those guys that I just mentioned had in common? Not only did they make everyone around them better, but they were often at their best under pressure. If the team's down one, there are five seconds on the clock, You've got the ball. Everybody in the universe knows who's going to shoot the ball. And they shoot it and make it anyway. No matter how good the defense is, they find a way to get it done. And they won championships. Lots of them. So let's compare the GOAT in basketball with John the Baptist. Would you call him the GOAT? Not only of basketball, but, but of all humanity? Hmm. He, let's, let's think about it. He lost his following. And when push came to shove, he wilted under pressure. His doubts overcame him. He was certainly not the goat in many people's eyes. Except the pair of eyes that matter more than any other. Jesus called John the Baptist the goat. Matthew eleven, eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> but if you know this text, you know that there's more to it than that. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, Jesus may be talking about you. 
Maybe you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, and yet Jesus considers you the greatest of all time. Think about it. Jesus does not see us the way that we see ourselves or the way that others see us. That's one of the reason, reasons. And it's reason enough, in fact, to strive to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on Jesus. Many times have you seen someone say something really good about another person and that person said, I never knew you felt that way. And it changes everything when you realize how the other person felt. I never knew you felt that way. And sometimes it's almost as much a rebuke as it is a, an expression of, I'm so grateful that you told me. But Jesus always thinks that about us. He's worthy of our praise. And when we think that all of our praise goes to him, one of the great things to remember, and I say it often, is that he is all about us. He loves us. He delights in our delight of him and in our delight of life. All these beautiful things that he's given us. Why spend so much time worrying about what we don't have? The reformers taught Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of those guys taught that it's not right for a Christian to try to improve his station in life. Now that's as un-American as we can get. And I do not believe that that was any more true than I believe it's true. You can be anything you want to be. We don't take another step without God's grace and mercy. We don't have another breath without the Lord's goodness. Why do we think as well as we do? Why do we serve as well? Why do we do anything as well as we do because of the grace and mercy of the Lord. Let's not spend our time worrying about what we don't have and worrying about who gets the credit. Jimmy Johnson used to say, wouldn't it be amazing what could be accomplished if nobody cared who got the credit? Give all glory to Jesus. Point others to Jesus. I can't think of anything greater. Let's pray. At the end of this prayer as we sing this morning, uh, the ushers are going to come. We take a benevolence offering on the fifth or the last Sunday of the month. This happens to be the fifth Sunday, but on the last Sunday of the month, it's just gifts that help those who are in need first in our body those, and then those who are outside our body. And it's a privilege to show and to share and to give the love of Christ in this way. So I pray that your hearts would be generous and that the Lord would use these gifts uh, to, to spread his love in the kingdom. Father, <clears throat> we acknowledge that we spend a lot of our lives thinking about how I am able to increase how I can provoke more attraction and attention and affirmation. Give us the heart of this man who understood that everything good in our lives comes as a gift from heaven.
may we, like John, point others to Jesus for the glory of the bridegroom. What a privilege it is as the church to be the bride of Christ. We pledge our allegiance to you. We worship you, Jesus. The one who was lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. That we might look and live. And it is in the name of Jesus, dear Father, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.